0: it is unprecedented it'll never happen again because you'll never get so many scientists from around the world focused on one condition Uh, and that investment in technology will pay dividends for years to come and i think that most of those dividends will be seen within the oncology world more so than in, in the world that i'm in which is infectious diseases
1: you're listening to the patient voice in cancer research fireside chat podcast The Patient Voice in Cancer Research is an initiative of UCD Conway Institute, a research institute based in University College Dublin. My name is Elaine Quinn. This podcast series deals with the topics that matter most to people on their cancer journey. What does the research tell us? We bring together patients and researchers to answer the tough questions. In episode one, we look at the impact of COVID-19 on cancer treatment and cancer research in Ireland. Patient Advocate Sarah McLaughlin is chatting to Michaela Higgins, Consultant Medical Oncologist at St. Vincent's University Hospital in Dublin and a Clinical Professor at UCD. Also joining the conversation is Paddy Mallon, Professor of Microbial Diseases in the UCD School of Medicine and a Consultant in Infectious Diseases in St. Vincent's University Hospital. This episode is introduced by Amanda McCann, Professor and Senior Conway Fellow in UCD who leads the Patient Voice in Cancer Research Initiative.
2: Good evening, everybody. My name is Amanda McCann. And on behalf of the Patient Voice in Cancer Research Committee, we'd like to extend a very warm welcome to all of you. We're absolutely thrilled by the number of you who have registered. This is a a very exciting event for us. It's the first time we've ever run anything like this. And we're very much hoping to continue the Farsight Chat. So if you enjoy this evening, we very much hope that you may sign up for, for future events as well. So the title of the Farsight Chat, our inaugural Farsight Chat, is the impact of COVID-19 on cancer research and cancer treatment. And we are delighted that two incredible doctors agreed to be the first chatters of our inaugural Side Chat, Michaela and Paddy. They have both been working at the front line during a, a really very, very challenging time with COVID-19, delivering such amazing health care in their respective disciplines. So Michaela is a mother of two. She's a consultant oncologist in St. Vincent's University Hospital. She's frequently invited to speak about cancer related matters uh, to patient advocate groups and obviously more recently COVID-19. She also supervises uh, oncology clinics in Haiti. And she has made a fantastic TED Talk in 2016 entitled The Cancer Story You Haven't Heard. So that is a brilliant title. It's a brilliant TED Talk. And I would really encourage you to to have a look at that. Paddy is a professor in microbial diseases in St. Vincent's Hospital. And at the height of COVID-19, I kid you not, I heard this man almost daily on our national radio. He's contributed to so many newspaper articles and indeed has been on TV as well and he has now become officially my most famous person that I know and um, he really he, he spoke so authoritatively and so well and gave such good guidance at a time in COVID-19 when it was rather scary and when I was chatting to Sarah and um, who I'll introduce now in a moment when we were preparing for this evening's event Sarah described uh, Paddy as a rock of sense and I think that's a, a wonderful description when he spoke people listened and as I say he guided us through a very challenging time so two wonderful people to to have a conversation with now in a few minutes. So thank you both very much and I'm delighted now to hand over to Sarah. Uh, Sarah will be facilitating and emceeing the event for us Uh, she has over 15 years experience in academic research and was diagnosed with cancer in 2016. Her interests lie in improving research and healthcare by embedding the patient voice. Central to this is her support of empowering patients and the public through accessible education. Sarah is involved in patient involvement across a range of disease areas, including as a member of the Patient Voice and Cancer Research uh, Steering Committee Group. So, Sarah, thank you very much. And I will pass over to you. And thank you again. Lovely to see so many here with us. And we look forward now to the next 45 minutes. Sarah, thank you.
3: Thanks very much, Amanda, for kicking us off here this evening. For me, I'd really like to welcome everyone to this first Patient Voice and Cancer Research Fireside event, and uh, I hope there will be many more. My name is Sarah. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2016 while I was working as a scientist in Philadelphia. Since then, I've become involved in patient advocacy in various different areas in research and in healthcare in Ireland. Um, I'm really delighted to be involved this evening and to be your host uh, to work us through these wonderful speakers that we have uh, and the questions that we'll hopefully get to at the end. Because of this pandemic, we have all seen the science and research has really taken centre stage this year and it has resulted in great advances in understanding this new disease um, and in the recent vaccine development that we have seen coming. Um, But scientists in Ireland have really contributed hugely to the COVID situation, such as uh, supporting like COVID testing and running studies on COVID in Ireland, uh, informing the public, such as Paddy has been doing, um, on the changing situation, but all the while keeping other non-COVID research functioning through all the di- very difficult circumstances that we've all been through um, in this past year. So I'd just like to take this opportunity just to say a big thank you to everyone that has been involved in Irish research for their work during the year. I know it has been tough for a lot of people. This leads me to the topic then for today. So the impact of COVID-19 on cancer research and cancer treatment. So as Amanda mentioned, we have two wonderful speakers to discuss this topic. Um, the format for this evening is that we'll give each of them a few minutes to share their thoughts with us. Uh, and then we'll move on to discussing some questions that have come in already through our PPCR um, group. And through the Q&A function this evening, you can also submit some questions or comments that you might have along the way. Uh, so, first up, we will hear from uh, Professor Patrick Mallon, or Paddy. Um, he is the UCD full professor of microbial diseases and also a consultant in infectious diseases in St. Vincent's Hospital here in Dublin. Uh, so, he graduated in medicine from Queen's University in Belfast. Uh, from there, he went to Sydney, where he completed a PhD in the long term toxicities of HIV. Since returning to Ireland in 2007, He's led the development of an active research group in infectious diseases and established the HIV Molecular Research Group, where they focus on translational research involving antiretroviral therapy. Um, And this year, as Amanda had mentioned, Paddy has been focusing um, on the clinical response to COVID-19 and working through the media to uh, keep the public informed on the changing situation. And, And second, then we'll hear from Michaela. Uh, So Professor Michaela Higgins is a consultant medical oncologist in St. Vincent's also and a UCD clinical professor. Uh, She's a graduate of UCD and completed medical and oncology training in Ireland, followed by a fellowship in medical oncology in Johns Hopkins Hospital in the States. Uh, She then moved on to Boston, where she's appointed as attending physician at uh, the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and also as an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. So in 2015, she returned back to Ireland um, as a consultant oncologist in the Matter in Dublin, um, and she's also the clinical director of the Cancer Directorate in the Matter Hospital. Um, professor Higgins specializes in the care of patients with breast cancer, which obviously is an interest of mine. Um, she's been involved in active clinical research for the past 10 years and is very well decorated with uh, multiple awards and grants. So now after that introduction we'll go to Patty first and then to Michaela to give us their thoughts on the impact of COVID-19 on cancer research and then afterwards we'll move on to some questions. So I'll go to you first Paddy please.
0: Thanks Sarah for the, the very kind introduction and Amanda for the for those very kind words, very flattering. I'm, I'm delighted to be here and uh, when when Amanda first put out the invitation to me it's very hard to turn down. Coming from a uh, a HIV perspective. For, for many years, we've we've relied on very close involvement with with our patient and and public uh, engagements. Uh, and I, I was telling Amanda in the lead up to this meeting that patient and public involvement in, in HIV uh, has been central to some of the major developments that we've had, and continues to be central to the developments that we've had both at a country level and internationally. And I guess it was on the on the back of that that. Uh, back earlier this year when I realized what was coming our way uh from from China and from the descriptions that were coming from colleagues in in Europe that the 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 natural approach to trying to reach out to the public and warn them about COVID was was through PPI and I don't know if many of you saw the video that I did with with Baz um, Aswami, but um, Baz is, has been a long time advocate for HIV research and we've worked quite closely together in a number of, of HIV, uh, HIV stories and studies for public engagement in the last couple of years. So it was great to be able to sit down with Baz and use his public leverage and his public profile. To, to highlight some of the stark warnings that, that, that were coming our way from a public perception or from a public um, stage. And one of the frustrations to me as an ID doc was that there were very few people in the country that actually had a clear idea of what we were facing. Uh, and what we were facing was a potential catastrophe when you looked at the, the shape of our health service um, coming out of a winter under a lot of stress with the number of trolleys that we had uh, and the fragility of the services that we were offering. Uh, and that's why the core from the beginning within Ireland has been an approach that a lot of people have criticized for maybe being too heavy. But the core at it was protecting life and protecting ongoing services. And if you look at what we've managed to do over the year, it it's no matter what way you look at it, we've had many people dying. We've had a lot of people getting sick. We've had a lot of inconvenience across the population. But two things stand out. First thing is we're finishing the end of the year with hospitals that are open and still providing clinical services. And especially around cancer services, the cancer services have continued throughout wave one and wave two. I know that working in St. Vincent's Hospital, ring fencing ongoing cancer services was pretty much at the top of the agenda, took precedence over pretty much any other service apart from critical care. Uh, and, And I think that's testament to the priority that's given to cancer care, but also to the the investment and effort from the public in general, You know, we're finishing the year with the lowest rates of COVID transmission in Europe. Um, we're finishing the year where I just came off a meeting yesterday with colleagues from around Europe and colleagues in Italy are talking about their whole hospital only doing COVID. Colleagues in Romania talking about their whole hospital only doing COVID. So there's no other routine care going on and And I think sometimes we can forget just how fortunate we are in the middle of the pandemic that we've managed to avoid that, even with all of the constraints that we have about a health service and a hSC that comes in for a lot of criticism. So the success that we've made this year is really down to public involvement and and that's the key and the continued success into the future is going to rely on public involvement uh, A very key aspect of that public involvement is that we have a knowledgeable population. So people get it, they get the message, if the message is presented to them in detail and honestly. Uh, and I think that that's been one of the highlights of the Irish approach, as being a consistent message from a political level right down to a medical level that the public have bought into. And I think if we can continue to buy into that message into 2021 as the vaccine rolls out, then I think we uh, we stand a very good chance of escaping from this uh, this pandemic relatively unscathed. Uh with regards to, to cancer research, I'm not gonna talk too much about that because that's really Michaela's forte. But what I will say is that the 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 types of technology that are being employed for the vaccine development, especially the mRNA vaccines. It, it's hard to understate the significance that this is going to have for medicine. I, I would call this, you know, in terms of vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, it, it's like getting access to a brand new BMW, while the run of the mill vaccines would be your Skoda or your Volkswagen. This is just such a sea change in, in terms of medical technology. It uses the very forefront of biotechnology. Of what we would call molecular biology, and molecular biology is what we've been working in in HIV for years. What we've achieved in one year uh, using this technology and applying it to a specific disease and ending up with a vaccine that is as effective uh, as we have with these mRNA vaccines is utterly astounding. We probably we, we will never see the like of this again. The implication that this has is that this technology, this mRNA technology, it's pretty much plug and play. At the moment, they've plugged this technology to fight COVID. It's very easy for the scientists to reprogram this technology to fight other diseases and to target other proteins. And where I think that that's going to have major implications is, is in one area in particular, and that's oncology. So the, what what's happened with with, with what we've seen with COVID is unprecedented. It'll never happen again because you'll never get so many scientists from around the world focused on one condition, and you will never get so many governments putting so much money uh, for something that they don't know whether it'll work or not. But it has worked, uh, and that investment in technology will pay dividends for years to come. And I think that most of those dividends will be seen within the oncology world more so than in, in the world that I'm in, which is infectious diseases. So. I think there's a huge amount of good that's come out of the year, despite all of the hardships that we've gone under. And I just hope that we can persevere with the efforts that we've made up to now in the next year so that we can see the start to see the end of this COVID pandemic.
3: OK, that's great. Patty, thank you very much for those thoughts. And we'll move on to Michaela, if you'd like to share some thoughts about the impact of COVID-19 on cancer cancer research and cancer treatments. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. It's lovely to be here. I'm really
4: interested in hearing Patty speak and all of you myself. So um, thank you for the intro. It's really great to be here. Very interesting. I suppose I'm coming from a clinical perspective as an oncologist caring for patients through a pandemic, something we never imagined. And I still have to pinch myself when I find myself wearing a mask and PPE and doing what we do every day and suddenly we're used to it. I think maybe for those that are listening, it might be helpful to reflect a little bit on what it was like at times. So I actually worked in the Matter Hospital until recently. And there in February, March and April, we were hit very hard. So we had at its peak 130 inpatients with COVID. So not just people who had COVID, but people who were unwell enough to require coming into the hospital. And given that we have about 500 beds in the Matter, when 120 of them are taken up over and above all the usual medical needs in the country, it means that all other services are ground to an absolute bare bones minimum. And at its peak, we also had 400 staff members out. So 400 staff were missing either with COVID or had been a contact or weren't in a position to provide childcare. So suddenly the system is under more stress than it's ever been under before. And we always had a trolley crisis. Plus we're missing huge numbers of staff. So for example, our clinical trials unit, we we pillaged it we took the staff from it two clinical trials nurses who had ICU experience were of course taken up to the critical care units the others we used to do contact tracing because every patient we were trying to continue to provide cancer care for had to be called 48 hours before their appointment before every appointment to see were they unwell did they have a cough had they a fever had they any contacts had they traveled and um, this was all evolving we didn't have systems in place to do it, we were scrambling. And I think actually we did a lot of things very well, very quickly developing algorithms. But just to reflect on how tough it was, we had skeleton staff with massive demands on our service. And I also was reading reports from China and Italy, and we were all alarmed. We didn't know what was barreling towards us. And in the beginning, I rationalized the care my cancer patients were getting. I looked at my weekly list of who is coming in for treatment and those in the highest risk groups, people who were older, had bad lungs, the ones I really feared would not survive COVID. I I had to make those difficult, nuanced decisions with the patients on whether or not the benefits, the potential benefits of chemotherapy outweigh the potential harm of them being immunosuppressed at a time of a pandemic um, would do to them. So there were very difficult conversations and we streamlined and and for a short period of time, we did cut back in the number of patients who are getting treatment, the number of patients who went on clinical trials had to change. In preparation for tonight, I had a little look and the NCI chairperson spoke actually last week at San Antonio and mentioned that in North America, usually they put 300 patients per week on a clinical trial for cancer. And that number went down to 50% in the peak. And to be honest, I was surprised that it was 50%. So clinical trial activity did continue. And a positive, I would also cite what has come out of the year, is that we have changed how we conduct clinical trials in in some fashion. We're allowing patients a lot more telehealth or virtual patient visits. We're even um, obtaining informed consent over the phone or virtually sometimes. Um, and it has streamlined some of the paperwork and improved some of the processes we use for gathering patient data. And a huge positive outcome has been the rapid sharing of knowledge. So I spoke of how frightened we were in the beginning, not knowing what was coming. But I think all of us in academia can see that the peer review process was just um, shaved in in more than half. So that things, so that news could be shared. There was none of this. I'm going to keep my results a secret until you find out. We shared everything. We collaborated. And we very quickly heard epidemiological reports, which have allowed us to tailor who really is at risk, the most highest risk groups. And happily, our experience has been that the vast majority of our patients have not have managed to not be exposed to COVID and not to pick it up. And the minority that have, have actually done much better than we had hoped, touching wood as I speak. And I think that was in part because the efforts we went to keeping our units clean, we moved our surgeries out to the private hospitals, In many cases, we moved our day wards out to separate buildings. But in large part, it was due to the efforts of our communities. Our patients and their families have been unbelievable. They have been living in bubbles and restricting their movements more than anyone I know and doing it with such grace. And it's hard week after week after month after month. And they're still doing it and being very strict with their children, people coming into the house and trying to have a normal life. So all credit to patients with cancer. And because of them, we have kept going and now everything is fully up and functioning. Our breast screening services, um, prevention, surgeries, treatment, nothing is stopped. It's Everything is going ahead. And just as Patty says, I think that's a great
3: credit to the Irish people and to Irish patients. Well, that's a, a great point to finish on your, your thoughts there, Michaela, because both yourself and Patty have really... Um, highlighted the, the, the real efforts um, and the fruits that we're seeing of the, the combined efforts of the Irish population that are really keeping this virus at bay and trying to keep everybody safe and keep our health system safe as well. So it's, it's, it's really striking to hear it from both of you in different areas. So we do have some um, quite specific questions related to um, COVID-19 and its impacts on cancer and research. Um, so we can go through those that came in from our um, patient voice and cancer research group. Um, and if anyone wants to share any questions that they have, you can use the Q&A function there um, on the screen. Uh, but the first question is, has the speed of identifying a vaccine for COVID-19 given insight into how cancer research could move more rapidly?
4: I guess I'll take a first pass on that. But to echo what Patty said, I think this was an exceptional once in a lifetime effort funding risk and experience that we're not likely to see again much as we would like it. The reality is that rapid clinical practice changing results in cancer research are few and far between, and what I would more realistically hope for is that we will continue to make incremental small improvements in the management and treatment of cancers. So sadly, I don't expect it. It would be, none of us can expect that this sort of global effort is is going to be ongoing. And um, some of, the, just as Patty said, you know, the mRNA technologies and vaccines that we're now seeing, I would be very hopeful they'll have a role to play. And I'm sure the pharmaceutical companies are beavering away. Uh, best case scenario, they're probably two to three years away. But we now have gotten more, much more familiar with immune mediated, both um, pathological pathways in cancer and also treatments that can be manipulated via the immunological pathways. So I would be very hopeful that they will have an a role to play, but they'll have to slowly go through the phase one, two, three process that usually takes years, not months. And I would expect things to go back to that slower pace, to be honest.
0: The big game changer here is the, the, uh, the ability with this mRNA technology of being able to design new mRNA um very easily. So that the the key, the key about mRNA for those that you don't know, it, it's like the message that instructs your body how to make different proteins, and the the technology enables this message to get inside your own cells. So, in the, in the case of the COVID vaccine, your own cells make one of the of, of the COVID proteins, and express it on 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 the the outside of the cell, so that your own body's immune system recognizes it and kills it, and it it's so effective, to you know to doses of the vaccine, 95% efficacy is phenomenal. Um, the thinking is that all you need to do is to change that message. The technology is exactly the same. You change that message to make a different protein. And for example, you could make a protein that's, say, expressed more on, on certain cancer cells, uh, and it could stimulate the body's immune system to start attacking those cancer cells. So the, the, the rapid potential here is the ability to rapidly change that message without, without change in the background technology. Uh, and that means that you've got the ability to make unlimited types of proteins very quickly. So the, the limitation is no more the, no more trying to find a protein or trying to find a, up until now the biologics and trying to make antibodies. This is technology that can be really rapidly adapted and rapidly changed very quickly they can develop a huge number of potential targets to see which one works the best um I obviously as Michaela said once you get a target and you find something that works it still has to go through that trial process now the trial process for covid has worked well because there's a lot of people out there with covid and a lot of people that you can vaccinate you know they've vac- they've, they've done a study of 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 40,000 people for example for the pfizer for the pfizer vaccine trial um the the delivery is easy and and it's a relatively safe technology so to do it in oncology like how rapidly you do these really depends on what disease you're dealing with if you're dealing with a very common disease and lots of people are suffering from it you could you could maybe do a study quite quickly if it's a rare disease it 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 may take longer and the approval process as Michaela said it's it's not that it's happened it's not that it's been rushed with COVID it's just been rapid So when you look at what the FDA, what the UK, what the the EMA, which is the FDA equivalent in Europe have done, they've reallocated everyone just to study the data from the COVID trials so that they can get a rapid decision. It's not rushed. So obviously that decision, when when we get past COVID, those decisions, because it's a resource issue, will probably take a bit longer. It's Mm -hmm. revolutionary in terms of its potential, but obviously it it, all how quickly it rolls out for specific diseases and and how relevant it is really remains to be seen.
3: And I I suppose uh, a difference for me is that with COVID-19, you're dealing with one virus that is a relatively simple entity and we know what it is and we know what spike proteins are. Um, So targeting something against that is relatively straightforward compared to cancer, which is really a multitude of different diseases, even like within say breast cancer, there's, there's so many different types of that as well. So it's, uh, a different kind of complexity once you look at something with cancer versus something that's um, relatively straightforward as one virus. So we can go to the second question then. The question is, does the COVID situation highlight the unique importance of collaborative research?
0: The collaborative piece within within oncology, I think it's fair to say that within all of the disease specialties, that um, looking at it from the outside, oncology comes across as being the most collaborative. Um, and I don't know of uh, of many academic oncologists that aren't very heavily internationally linked, and I don't know of any successful oncologist who's become a success without without international collaborations. So I think you're right; it does highlight the importance of international collaborations, um, and that's why I think oncology is is ideally placed to exploit the the scientific advances.
3: Yeah. So moving on to our our next question, then. And so this this kind of question gets at maybe the the complexities of cancer versus um a, a viral approach, but does the effectiveness of getting the covid nineteen vaccines into clinical trials quickly demonstrate the hope for novel immunotherapies to be accessible for cancer patients
4: yes, I think we we've, we've discovered that and and not to repeat what patty's saying, but if we can instruct a cell to make a protein, there is the logic that that could be useful in lots of different ways. And we hope to springboard from the technologies that are now available. And in fact, I think some of the stuff I read was that some of this mRNA vaccine technology began with, with cancer researchers. So absolutely, we'll use that springboard now in, in multiple ways and diseases, I've no doubt. But without, you know, with collaborative efforts, absolutely. And hopefully some of the learnings about not being afraid to share our data early and with other groups. um, Hopefully that will continue, but at a somewhat slower pace as hopefully the rest of the world and the care that everybody needs continues also.
3: Thank you for that. And then for the next question that we have then is related to research methodology and involvement of patients. So do you think that we have learned anything from the COVID-19 situation that could make Cancer research methodology more relevant or more appealing to cancer patients?
4: So I would say actually the
3: telehealth aspect,
4: we've been surprised at how acceptable that is to patients. And I I have been a little disappointed. It's not a huge time saver, but it is a little time saver sometimes. But I do think um, if you it all of this is helping to educate our communities and our populations. Suddenly people know what the sensitivity and specificity of a test is and a false positive. What that means, you know, the lexicon has changed this year. So suddenly people are asking amazing questions and very pertinent, nuanced um solutions are coming up. So, yes, I think we'll take those learnings. And um, certainly for oncology, we were a little bit behind infectious diseases at having the patient's voice included. My hope would always be that a patient is included at every step of a clinical trial. The design, the ethical review, the conduct of the trial. Um, And how it's interpreted and shared with others. And of course, we would all hope that there will be a clinical trial option for every patient at every step of whatever cancer they have. Um, So we're not there, but I think every little thing that makes trials easier, and I would include talking about trials, patients knowing that a clinical trial is an option, or that maybe we could talk to them over the phone about it, each little thing makes having a patient engage with a clinical trial just a little bit easier. And those incremental. Changes hopefully would improve clinical trial
3: accrual. And I, I can see the advantages that you met, that you spoke about there with uh, telemedicine and um, talking to people over the phone or um, by Zoom if, or whatever the technology is for talking to patients. And I, I know as a patient myself, it's actually really, I've really benefited from it because instead of having to traipse into Vincent's for my appointments or across to James's or wherever, I can just do it from home and it, it can take, take something that could have been an entire day before um, can mean it just takes about an hour for me. So I I can really see it makes things a lot more accessible for patients um, and I'd be very supportive of it from my own experience. Paddy, would you have anything to add about um, what we've learned from COVID-19 about making research more uh, relevant for cancer patients or patients in general?
0: I guess there would be three aspects of it I think that, that are important. The first thing is that everything that's gone into the technology that's been developed through COVID is being paid for by the public. So the risk has been taken by governments uh, and by the EU and, and less so by the pharmaceutical companies. And that's another reason why things have, have developed so rapidly because the, the their money was no issue uh, and the risk was taken by us as taxpayers. That has implications then for how that technology is going to be used. Uh, so for example, the, I'll give you a caveat from HIV. The, the biggest advance in 30 years of of working in HIV was was discovered in about the last five years when we realized that if someone was HIV negative and they took antiretroviral therapy, that you could prevent acquisition of HIV. And it's called pre-exposure prophylaxis. And we we managed to be one of the first countries in Europe to get freely available uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis provided at, at a national level through the HSE. And that effort was driven by patients and it wasn't driven by patients who were HIV negative. It was actually driven by patients who were living with HIV. So the very patients who were were going to get no benefit from this directly, but could understood the science. The trials were good and they were advocates at a public level, got into Leinster house and lobbied politicians with science and they were listened to. Uh, And we, we got a program that was 6 million Euro per year that was a pleasure to be involved in because it was doctors and patients working together with government to implement policy rapidly and, it, and it's been a success a success since what that means for the for the technology for example mrna technology if you think about it and it, it goes to the, the last question about accessibility to treatment a lot of oncology treatments have been beset by huge costs and and the huge costs have often been explained away by pharmaceutical companies saying that they're paying they're paying a huge amount of money for research and development huge amount of money for production of a biological molecule and they may not get a huge volume of use for it so therefore they have to put a big price tag on the drug they can't use that argument for mrna technology because the technology is being paid for already. Uh, and it's being paid for by governments. And you can't charge next to nothing for a COVID vaccine and then use exactly the same technology for a malignancy and put a price tag of 20 or 30,000 euro on it. So that's something that I would definitely advise everyone in the oncology field, whether they're physicians, researchers, or patients to keep an eye out for. Um, Because we, we are owed... A lot more from the investment that we put in as taxpayers around the world uh, from this technology over the coming years, and we should be getting more accessible and cheaper treatments for cancer as a result.
3: Yeah, I saw a very interesting graphic in on BBC website uh, in the last couple of days about the proportion of the where the funding has come from for all the different um, vaccines, and it, it was very revealing. All right, the majority of the money was coming from um, governments or from um, non profits. So that's, a, that's a very interesting point and it's going to be a question that we've constantly been grappled with by um, patient organizations around um, the prices of uh, treatments. Okay well, I suppose that brings us nicely to an area that you've, you've both touched on already um, but it's about um, your experience of active uh, patient involvement in either of your research areas. Um, so you've, you've mentioned some already um, but if you've any specific things that you'd like to mention about your experiences of patient involvement um, yourselves or um, in, in your general area? I, I continue to hope that every
4: cancer patient will have a clinical trial option. And if there isn't a therapeutic clinical trial option for them, and if there is, I think the other thing um, that's important would be that each patient is asked to provide or to allow their biobanked tissue samples. So a previous biopsy or surgical specimen of their tumor. Be banked and stored for future research. And we might know today, we didn't know last year that mRNA vaccines would be of interest this year. And um, hopefully, next year won't be a year like this, but that every patient should have the option of having their tissue stored thoughtfully so that it could be used for research questions, whatever they may be in the future. And um, I would love to see that. Patients want it. I've never found a patient who didn't, who wasn't happy for leftover to be tissue to be used for something that might help someone in the future. Um so we have a very engaged, wonderful population who, in my experience, are very willing to help if we um, if we owe it to them to have a good option for them
3: and to um, invite them to help us take forward cancer research. Yeah, very good points. I suppose we see often with cancer patients that they really want to get involved in research, not only to hopefully produce new treatments that are in some way help themselves, but often they want to pay it forward and they want to help the people that will benefit in the future from the treatments. I suppose one question that has come through is related to a term that has become more popular in the last couple of years, um, but it's around the issue of fake news. Um, and would you have any thoughts around, you know, fake news around COVID or around um COVID issues for cancer patients that are where we really need um reliable sources of information um and what do you think about the threats of fake news to um cancer patients
0: well i know from from the hiv perspective you know what's happened in the last year with covid and fake news is nothing new from both infectious diseases or hiv and and since i start i can remember starting out in hiv my first job was in london back in, in the late 90s and um, you know patients were actively dying back then because of a lobby group that was very strong that believed that, that HIV didn't exist and it was sad to see patients um, act, actually dying of, of advanced immunodeficiency carrying with them this belief that they they didn't need treatment and in some cases seeing individuals who believed that HIV was killing them but being told by their family members not to, not to be treated and, and that 's passed its way all the way through my career, uh, where you're constantly dealing with medical disinformation. And it's one of the key roles for the patient as an advocate um, because no matter how, how well we portray ourselves, every doctor carries with them baggage, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and if you're if you're involved in research, you're involved in research that links you to pharmaceutical companies in some way so you're always carrying with you a potential conflict. And that's a very easy thing to criticize if you're putting a message across. If you're a patient and you've lived with the disease, you carry with you the disease and you carry with you a unique knowledge and a unique insight. And that's a very powerful thing to, to use when you're communicating. And uh in, in my experience, the best approach to addressing fake news comes from the people living with the condition, who are knowledgeable, who are educated, and who are good communicators. And and that really is, it's been the key in HIV the whole way along. Uh, The the most impressive people that I know working in the HIV field, among them are are groups of patients, uh, and groups of patients that are as professional and knowledgeable as the best researchers in the field. And I think that that advocacy uh, is gonna be really important as as, as we reach into next year, because as the vaccine rolls out, The the anti-vax field is going to be very focal. uh, And what we need is is clear communication that is evidence-based. It's not that one person's right or one person's wrong. It's just that everyone bases an opinion on evidence uh, and we avoid speculation. Uh, So I think that and and the key is it's it's educated members of the public, and especially in a disease area like oncology, where vaccination is going to be very important. It's making sure that those patient advocates that are vocal are vocal In support of the right public health measures
3: and bringing the voices of patients um and the voices of experience into those areas can really help people engage with the message um and they can really see the the i guess the honesty and the integrity behind the the, the patients coming forward themselves michaela you're you're nodding away there so i couldn't agree
4: more you know fake news has always been around in oncology you know i can't Tell you how many things I've been told have cured cancer or I knew someone who was cured by coffee enemas, or you name it
3: mm-hmm. um, so I've heard many myself
4: yes, and it, it it's our job, and we're doing it tonight. these sort of open communication channels where people are hopefully seeing for themselves our best balanced experts' opinions and hearing rational, good data in as well it's It's my job to explain. Um, you know, the therapies I'm offering to someone, be it a vaccine or be it chemotherapy, that's my job to explain the pros and cons. And I would hope that everyone has a physician that they trust and have confidence in. Um, we, we've put dedicated our lives and years to getting this right. We we want only the best for our patients. So it's our job to communicate well to our patients. And just as you say, think of the like of a Vicky Phelan, what she has done to raise awareness about her illness and possible treatments. She has done more than probably the rest of the country combined um, to progress information and to encourage women to go for cervical cancer screening um, when that was a very tough thing to do. Um, And I would be very hopeful that she'll also encourage cancer patients to get the COVID vaccine. I just see that somebody's wondering whether their taxol reaction would predispose them to have an allergic reaction to the vaccine. And I wanted to say that there's a very unique mechanism that... The stuff Taxol is made up in is well known and and causes specific types of allergic reactions. And there is no reason to think that that is why you would have a reaction to the COVID um, vaccine, completely different technologies. And I believe it to be a very, very safe vaccine. And if the EMA approves it, I absolutely will be recommending it for all of my patients.
3: Speaking of vaccines, the great work of Laura Brennan Mm -hmm. um, in her final month, where she was um, really uh, publicizing the HPV vaccine. Yes. Um, yeah. All right. We've well, actually uh, come to the end. We're just slightly over our time now. So um, I feel like I could keep talking to you all evening, but I will just um, like to really thank everybody that's here. And I know Amanda will thank everybody as well. Um, so I will just ha- pass it over to Amanda just very quickly um, so she can say her last words and then I will close up the evening.
5: So Paddy and Michaela, a, a sincere thanks. I, I can't imagine a better way to have kicked off our fireside chats um, I always learn so much when I when I listen to both of you, and it, it's incredible to to get your very transparent, honest, and informed uh, um, views on things. So thank you so much for for answering those questions so well, Sarah. A big thank you for facilitating your great and no more than our 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 chatters. You you came on board straight away when we asked, and 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 that's just been brilliant. And just again to thank Elaine Quill, Quinn and Sheila Lane. Elaine has been working with me on the patient voice since 2016. So we've got great history here and she's managed to keep this webinar working beautifully on top of everything else she does. And Sheila, thank you as well for for, for supporting the event. So that, that's all I have to say. It, it has been superb. And as I say, I couldn't have wanted for a better inaugural fireside chat. So so thank you very much. And I'll pass back to Sarah.
3: Thanks to Michaela and Paddy. Thank you so much for joining us today. And it's, it's great to hear your thoughts on this really important um, issue. And also, just as the first one, it's really uh, quite timely that we'd have the, the COVID impact on cancer um, and on research um, as the first one of the Fireside event. So thank you very much both for joining us today and also for your work during the year for uh, the patients in public Ireland.
1: You've been listening to the Patient Voice and Cancer Research Fireside Chat podcast. A big thank you to our speakers and patient participants today. Subscribe and follow the Patient Voice in Cancer Research wherever you get your podcasts.